Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to jump right into the middle of a thought. Hebrews 11 verse 13. Let's read from verse 13 to verse 16 and ask God to apply this to our hearts. If you're a guest, the, you should know the sermon will feel, at least it should, feel like we're doing a bit of a Bible study so that all the truth you hear today should come right out of the Bible. There is the authority. The authority in this church is found in God's Word. We stand underneath the authority of God's Word. Let's go to it. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 13. <clears throat> These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is... They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus to help us. Your people need help. Lord, please bring healing to the souls of men and women. Restore the joy of our salvation. Make us strong. God, we need you. Lord, I need you to help me to say rightly what your word says so that your people are encouraged and challenged. And God, we pray especially for men and women here that have been coming to church and yet are still dead inside. God, I pray you would give eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe the good news of Jesus. And so help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> College football started this weekend, which uh, didn't really excite me because I don't watch it very much, but I did play it. I played football my entire young life. From the very time I was in the second grade, when August rolled around, it meant weigh-ins down at the fire department, shoulder pads in practice, whether it was Mint Hill Athletic Association or then on to Northeast Junior High School, then went to the Big Eye Independence, and then to Walford College. And almost every game I played on Saturdays, almost every game I played, my mom and dad were in the stands. Now, my mother is not a football fan. She has no idea how many home runs it takes to win a football game. <laughs> or if double dribble is even illegal in football. But every Saturday come game time, there she'd be in the stands, with Southern Living Magazine in her hand. <laughs> but when the defense would go on the field, my dad would say, Brenda, Clint's on the field. <laughs> now she wouldn't know, I mean, I could, I could pancake somebody she wouldn't know she didn't know what was going on down there but every game she'd show up sit in the stand with a big saucer sized pin 
on her sweater, and on that pin it said, my son is number 56, Clint Presley. Now, whether I had the greatest game of my life with lots of sacks or a terrible game, it didn't matter. When the game was over and I came outside, come out of the locker room there, mom and dad would be standing, and she'd always say, you did so good, I'm so proud of you. She was not ashamed to be called my mother. For some reason... <clears throat> As I wrestled with this passage this week, rolled up on this remarkable statement, that story came back to my mind. There's a remarkable statement down in verse 16, you might as well go ahead and look at it, that struck me. It says in verse 16 that God was not ashamed to be called their God. The only place in the whole Bible you'll see that God is not ashamed. It's astounding to me. Most of the time we are told as Christians that it is us. We're the ones that's supposed to not be ashamed. We're the ones that are supposed to live our lives in such a way that we are not ashamed of the things that we believe. Even make t-shirts that might say, not ashamed. Paul wrote his magnum opus, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he gives us the purpose of the book, and he says that I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation, even the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus told his followers, this is what it's like when you follow me. Luke chapter 9, whoever, whoever is ashamed of me before men, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, I will be ashamed of him when my Father comes in glory. So it's, so it's astounding in verse 16 when you read that. To hear God say that he's glad, that he is proud, that, that he's happy to be the God of these people. Do you know who he's talking about? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a running tally of those that lived by faith, but in this very context right before it, you, you have the names Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. How could God not be ashamed to be their God? Before Genesis 12, Abraham was a rank pagan before God went to save him. Isaac's nothing but a wallflower. He didn't even play much into the story. And then you get to Jacob. Man, the Bible does not paint the man named Jacob in a really good light. And yet, God identifies himself as the God of Jacob. And then there's Sarah. Sarah, in her, in her advanced age, when God told her she was going to have a baby, she laughed at how old she was. She laughed harder how old her husband was. And yet, the preacher, when he talks to his people, he says, now look, God was not ashamed to be their God. To know it, I mean to know it, to know it. It's an amazing thing. To, to know that he loved you since the foundation of the world. 
Old Testament, to, to know that your name is inscribed on his hands. To live with the truth, Ephesians says, to, to live with the truth that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works and God loved you so much that he set them up beforehand. So that when you're a Christian, when you're a Christian, when you're a Christian, you are presented to God covered in the righteousness of Christ and he is happy about that. What a great phrase. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Is God ashamed to be called your God? When he looks at you and he sees your mind and examines your heart and he knows your life, does he see the one shining thing that he loves, which is the righteousness of Christ? You see, becoming a Christian is more than just coming to church. Becoming a Christian means realizing that God is holy and that you are actually a sinner and sin is a high crime against God. So that's the first realization. And then from there you hear the gospel of Jesus and you trust that you're not perfect, but Jesus is. You trust in the perfect life of Jesus so that, so that when it comes time to be seen, it's going to be his righteousness, not yours. You trust that if God is going to, he's going to punish a crime, all of that punishment has been placed on Jesus at the cross, every bit of it. You trust that Jesus died as your substitute. You trust that God gave victory in the resurrection. He raised Jesus from the dead. It's why we come to church on a Sunday. And you trust that that gives you hope. That he takes your sin and gives you righteousness. And because of that, because of that, God is not ashamed to be your God. You see, because he loves you. Be careful how you talk about God take, accepts me as I am. He, he does not. He rejects you as a sinner. Does not accept you like that. God accepts us when we are in Christ. You see, and that's what I... Man, that's what I want for you. I want you to know the joy of, of being loved and accepted and held up by God in Christ. So I'll say it like this as we go into the text. <clears throat> there is great honor being in Christ. There's great honor. So how do you know? I mean, you don't, that's how you find out about the Bible. How do you learn things about the Bible? You just ask questions. So my, how do you know how do you know that God is not ashamed to be your God? Well, I think this passage tells us, and I, I think the best way to get at it is to ask questions. So I'll start with the first one, number one. Here's the first question. Do you, do you have an obvious faith? Is it clear to those around you and to yourself that you actually are a Christian? You see the first phrase in verse 13? These all died in faith. You see that? These all died in faith. So my very first question, it really doesn't get us very far, is who is these all? Okay, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, 
before that, it's going to be Abel and Enoch and Noah. Everybody that, that the preacher's talked about so far, these are the ones he's talking about. Okay, if that's the case then, what does it mean to die in faith? What does that mean? Or literally it says, these all died according to faith. To, to die with the confidence in the goodness of God to die with the confidence of the power of grace, the truth of the gospel, the joy of, of heaven. The fact is that dying according to faith necessitates living according to faith. Dying according to faith necessitates living according to faith. You die how you live. Now, we're thankful for the great story in the gospels of the thief on the cross, that that man lived a debauched, terrible life, and yet on the cross put his faith in Jesus and was saved. We're thankful. We're thankful for the stories of men and women that lived without Christ and are dying on a hospital bed. Someone goes in and shares the gospel and they're saved before they meet their maker. Those are wonderful stories. Those are outside the norm. You see, the norm is that you, you die how you live. So then the question becomes, are you living according to faith? Do you have the promises of God deeply engraved into your heart and mind so that regardless of what happens to you, regardless of how you are treated, your confidence is in the good grace of God, the purpose of God in your life that he has taken you somewhere? Is your Christianity the driving is it the driving trait of who you are? Is your Christianity the foremost characteristic that people notice in you? That they, they, may, they may not know much about you. What they know is that you actually are a Christian. They've been to your Instagram page, and they, that person must be a Christian. Yesterday, I was uh, at the gas station. <clears throat> Saturdays, Connie and I get up. We have our coffee and read the Bible, have our quiet time, and usually go on a walk, and after that, I'll go and Fill up the vehicles. Saturday is a very expensive day at my house. I'll take Connie's truck, clean it up, and fill it up, and I'll go take my car and do the same. I'm standing at the gas station pumping gas. I've seen this woman before, but never this close. The lady pulls up into the gas station, and when she opens her car door, her radio is so loud. But it's playing music I recognize. It's praise music. And she gets out, leaves the door open, it's very loud, and she starts singing as loud as the radio is playing. I mean, she is singing, the and, it's, and actually she's carrying the tune pretty good, she's singing, and she starts walking away from her car, 30 feet, 40 feet, she's singing. She's picking up trash. Now, this woman may be certifiably insane, I don't know. But you know what I do know? She praises the Lord. What do people know when they look at you? Is your life such that you, you sense, you, you really do sense, regardless of what you're going through, you actually do sense the sustaining power of God. You know that the love of God is, is, is holding you up through the anxiety and the sickness or even the broken heart. You know that God is carrying you through. Y'all remember the um, remember the poem, The Footprints in the Sand? Get it printed out, framed up, put it in your house. 
If you don't know, you can look it up later. Google it, footprints in the sand. The poem is, uh, it depicts a person having a dream, and their dream is looking at a beach, and there are two sets of footprints. One is the Lord's, and one is his. And as his dream progresses, he realizes that there were some really hard times in his life, and during those hard times, he looks at the footprints, and there's only one set of footprints. And so he goes to the Lord and says, why is it when things were so bad that you let me walk by myself? And the Lord, of course, says, no, when you see one set of footprints, that's me carrying you. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, there's never been two sets of footprints. There's always and only one. And those footprints are pierced. Pierced through for our transgression. You see, Jesus, he's the one carrying you. It's, it's, it's not that you are doing good but things go bad and you, you just need Jesus to come over. He's the one carrying There's a certain joy in that. Is there joy underneath? Is there joy underneath all that you are facing and all that you are doing? Is there joy underneath all that you're facing, all that you're doing, all that you're thinking? I don't mean that you sit around and laugh all the time. I mean underneath that there's a bedrock of joy that reminds you that your life has been planned. Hey, look, let's drop some theology in there. We're, we're Trinitarians. Isn't it good that your life has been planned by God the Father? You have been planned by God the Father. You are redeemed by God the Son. You are secured by God the Spirit. What are you worried about? You have confidence in God's goodness and sovereignty in that. Are you able, let's switch gears, make it more practical maybe. Are you able to forgive people? So you had something really bad happen. It hurt you deeply, and it was tragic and wrong. And that's over. Your soul has begun to heal. Are you able, because of God's grace in your life, what he's done for you, and because of his strengthening power of his spirit, and the fact that Jesus is your Lord, you're actually able, you're able to forgive and be done? Are you able to forgive people? Are you able to actually put people before yourself? You see, you can't, you can't die according to faith without living according to faith. So the first question is, do you have an obvious faith? That's one question from verse 13. I think there's another Let's see if we can withdraw this second question. Number two, do you have a solid hope? First question, do you have an obvious faith? Second question, do you have a solid hope? Let's go to verse 13, and let's read the description found there in verse 13. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar. Stop right there. Having seen them, they didn't receive the promise, but they saw it. Way out there, they saw it. Who's he talking about? Well, let's just see if we can narrow it down to Abraham and Sarah. 
Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave his country. Genesis 15, and then throughout Genesis, he receives a promise that God told him, even though he's an old man and your wife is old, you're going to have a child, and that would be the begin, that would be the beginning of descendants that will number as many as the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. That's the promise. But they were old. They were promised that there would be a land they would go into. He wouldn't see it. I mean, we know that. We went through Joshua. Joshua is the one that led them into the promised land. They, they had the promises of God. They knew what God said was true. All about the promised land, about God's people expanding. But they never saw it fulfilled. And yet, they trusted God is good that he, that he keeps his word that one day he would bring about the promises. They, they didn't get to see all the blessings. John Piper, when he looked at this passage, I sometimes like to listen to John Piper's sermons. I would encourage you to do that. I like it because he's passionate about the Bible and he preaches with, with uh, just great unction. You just don't hear that much anymore, so I'd love to hear him preach. But he talked about this passage and something he said uh, struck me, and I think it's a good way to think of it. We are blessed. God does bless Christians. We are blessed. We get some blessings now, some now, but most blessings later. Some now, some on earth, but most of the goodness and the great blessings of God come later when we are with Him. And the picture here is of men and women that had the promises of God, and yet they didn't see it fulfilled. They didn't get all the blessings. They trusted that it was coming, and they were glad. The text says they, they looked forward with joy. I mean, we do that now. What's the tension? We, we live in what many have called the already and not yet. The already and not yet. We are already saved Christians, we are not yet living without sin. We are already, you're already a child of God, but that is not yet fully realized until we are with Him. Do, uh, do you have a solid, a solid grasp, a solid love, a, a solid hope that God is good that God is working in the world? Do, do you have this hope that God is working in your life according to his good counsel? That he has a plan? He's actually taken you somewhere? I mean, we do that as a church. Look, we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord Jesus, to thank God, to hear the word, to encourage one another to sing to God and for each other. We do that. We gather on, on Wednesdays for discipleship. That's true. But there's more to it. It's not just for us. 1955, God in his goodness planted this church right here on this corner. He did that with an eye not on the present but on the future. This church has always kept one eye on, on worship and what on the future. That God put us here not just for us but for the next generation. I mean, we, we're here 
for all of those that are not born, that will be born, that will come here. We're, we're here for all of those that are not yet believers in Jesus. We're building a legacy not on our name. Look, when you give, when you give, when you give to the Lord at Hickory Grove, you're giving not just to keep the lights on. Thank God that they're on and the air conditioning running. We're giving for the future. We're giving for the gospel. We're giving so that we reach more people. We do the things we do to honor Christ and reach those without Jesus. We built a legacy, not for my name. Look, I'm a steward. I've been here January will be 13 years. Who knows how long I can take this? Or you either. We go it as hard as we can till the Lord just takes us home or whatever he does. We don't build a legacy for my name or your name. I mean, what do we have, 20, 30 years? If the Lord is kind, 40 years from now? Not for us, but for the glory of God and for reaching people for the gospel. We do that building a legacy on the gospel. We rejoice. We rejoice in our context where God has placed us. We praise God for the opportunity that he put you where you are. And if we are, we can be like those in Christ. We can be like the people described here. They didn't get the promise fulfilled. They could see it. Or, or like Moses. Remember Moses led the people out of Egypt into, headed toward the promised land. They got in the desert. And Moses was having a hard time managing them. God was feeding them. God told him to get water from the rock. He struck it twice, and God punished him, said, you're not going to go into the promised land. You're not going to cross the Jordan. Moses asked God, please, please let me go into the promised land. Lord said, no, you can't go in, but I'll take you up on a high hill, and you look over. You can see it. You may not get to see the thing you're praying for. You may not see the answer. That's not up to you. You, you may not see that child come to Christ. You, you may not see the answer come. But here's what you know. Think about what you know about God. You know that God is gracious and merciful and kind, so you've got the mercy of God on one hand. You know that the gospel works because it saved you and you've seen it save people. You know those things. So you take the mercy of God, you lift it up to God, and you take the, the gospel and you ask God to do something, and then you hope. Take those two, put them before God, you pray and hope, and you look at those promises. You can see it from afar. Because God has a good plan for the days ahead. Do you? Do you have an obvious faith that becomes the characteristic people? No. Do you have a solid hope? You look into the future. Let me give you a third question, I think is asked when you read verses 14 and 15 and 16 and maybe even the first part of verse 13. In fact, I think that's where it begins. Here's the third question. Do you have a clear identity? Who you are? Is that settled? Your identity. Let's read verse 13 again. Um, and this time pick up on the words at the end of verse 13. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Strangers. They acknowledged, they, they knew we don't belong here. They knew they didn't belong. And they weren't trying to fit in to the culture where they were. They acknowledged we are strangers, exiles, or aliens. Is an even stronger way to translate it. When I read that, I thought about the world we live in right now. And I thought especially about those younger than me. Students. Even young singles and married. The pressure. There's such pressure. There's such pressure. Social pressure. That's placed on so many people. Especially on those that are young. It's a pressure to conform. A pressure to, to recognize someone's preferred pronoun or to even state what your pronoun. There's pressure to accept this, this fluid understanding of gender. There's even pressure to apologize for the good attributes of the gender that you are. Forget in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this is not just a Christian thing. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the, 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 the maleness and femaleness of humans. That the maleness and the femaleness of humans reflect the glory of God. That masculinity and femininity, they reflect, those are good things, the glory of God. That God created us like that in his image and he did that for his own glory. I think that um, both sexes are under attack. Truthfully, I do. I think, I, I think that femininity and also masculinity, I think, though, it feels like that the attack really is heavy on men and boys. Let's not forget that the way God, the way God made men, the way he made them to, to, to think and to to live and to act at the very best. Now, I'm not talking about the worst. You can find the worst if you want to. I mean the best. To protect and to shield and, and if you have to, to fight or to respect, to, to give and to sacrifice and to try to fix. To love. The, 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 those things are there to reflect the glory of God and they're good. Or, or think about the way God made the way God made a woman. Go back and read it, the beauty of that story and how it's laid out, the, the femininity of God's good creation and the woman, how she's made to be beautiful and kind, to be resilient and smarter than her husband and, 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 and discerning and, and hopeful and sacrificial. Those things are God's good design. But if you claim that you believe that, you're a stranger and an alien in this world. 
to regard marriage between a man and a woman as a picture of the gospel, not just a fulfillment of romance, but a picture of the gospel to see the the woman is a picture of the church submitting to Christ that the woman submits to the husband and the husband providing leadership like Christ does the church. To see that as a real picture of the gospel makes you a stranger and an alien in this world. To take a hold of objective truth to see that there is a very clear right and wrong makes you a stranger and an alien. Or bring it home, I mean, bring it where we are. 2022, September, there is a labor shortage in this nation right here in North Carolina to, to, as a Christian to see the value in hard work or to love the church, to, to, respect, to respect elders. I, I mean, all these traits and thousands more, they stem from creation. They stem from a love of God and a biblical worldview and they make us different, strangers and aliens. You see, when you take all of your hopes and all of your dreams, all of your ambitions, and you subject them to the lordship of Jesus, it makes you completely out of step with the world you live in. Take a trip sometime up to New England, drive there through Virginia and go into Washington and out of Washington into Pennsylvania into Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And if you get on the right road, you might find yourself behind a horse-drawn buggy. Sitting up in the seat, reins in his hand, is a man with a black hat, strange clothing, and this weird beard. Looks like they're from another world. Now, I'm not saying we ought to be Amish. I like a V8 and air conditioning way too much. I'm not saying that we ought to look like Amish. What I'm saying is that our lives are to be so distinct that it becomes obvious we don't belong here. That in fact, verse 14, 15, that in fact we are looking for something else. Read it, 14, 15, 16, two words. See the two words. Seek, desire. What do you seek? What do you desire? Find it with me, verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Come down to verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly Verse 14, they seek a homeland. That's the Greek word patris. They seek literally, it's literally, they seek a fatherland. More than a place to live. Seek somewhere where it feels like home. Go away from home for a little while and you get to come back and it just, it just feels right to be home. The preacher says that's what these people are seeking, not the, not the trappings of the world. They're seeking something that suits them. Then down to verse 16, come down to verse 16, they desired a country that's a better country. They desired a better country. Verse 16, he defines what a better country, it is a heavenly one. That's their quest. That's a Christian's quest. 
What's your quest? What's your goal, your ambition? You want to retire early and get a place at the beach? I'm all for it. If you do, hope you'll invite us to come. But look past it now. Don't stop there. Don't stop at the, at the amount of money or the place to live or the contentment. Go beyond that seeking something else. What are you seeking? What's your goal, ambition? What are you pursuing? See, all, all of this life, every bit of it, all of this life, the entire struggle, the hardship, the frustration, the sickness, disappointment, the longing, it reminds us there's a better kingdom. There's a better kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom. How did Paul say it? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. <clears throat> Paul said this light, this light momentary, this hip replacement, this heart attack, this stroke, this tragic death, this pain, this living away, this light momentary affliction is doing something in us. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Every ache, every pain, every disappointment prepares us for our home the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, there is great honor being in Christ. Do you have it? Do you have an obvious faith? Do you have a solid hope? Not that you get all the blessings now, but you can see it. You trust that God's going to... You have a solid hope. You have a clear identity. It's clear to you and everybody else. Or, or more pointedly, take the end... Is God ashamed to be your God? You know, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be that way. With that in mind, join me just, just for a moment in an attitude of prayer. With your heads bowed this morning. Is God ashamed to be your God? When you hear that, do you wonder? You're not sure? It's the gospel now. It's the gospel. Trust the gospel. What is the gospel? God is holy. You are not. The sinfulness against God is an offense that must be punishment. That must be punished. God is also loving. That punishment he placed on Jesus, who lived the righteous life, he gained the righteousness and goes to the cross as a substitute for sinners. And the free offer of the gospel is if you'll repent, if you'll turn away from sin, if you'll turn, put your faith in Jesus, then he takes your sin and gives you his righteousness and then God looks at you and is not ashamed to be your God. Will you come to Christ today? We're going to sing last, a, a last worship song. This song is here as an invitation, inviting you. Our pastors are down front. If you'd like to come and pray with one, it's a good time to find out what does it mean to know this God and have him be happy to have me as his child. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring sinners to repentance, 
that you would bring comfort to brothers and sisters and confidence and that you will be honored that you might not be ashamed to be our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?